so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian High. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Very good to have you along. I'm glad that you're paying attention. At least I assume that's that's one of the reasons you listen to this program, among others, on the America Out Loud Network. You want to know what's going on, right? You're not content to be you're content to be fed, to, you know, pablum, something that's already been chewed up and pre-digested for you. Here you go. Here's your sound bites. Now this is what you're supposed to believe. Nope. This is uh, this is full on mental nutrition. For people who are taking responsibility for a well-balanced diet as far as what they feed their minds. And hopefully I've put out a menu today that will give you plenty of food for thought as well as some empowerment and encouragement. You know, the first thing I want to say is if you have made it through to this point, nearly two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, if you've made it to this point with uh, with your DNA intact still holding on to reality, if you are immovable in your determination not to be forced into things that you do not want to participate in, well done. That's hard. And by the way, if you're one of those people who has has sadly had to make compromises along the way, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. And it doesn't mean, well, you sell out, you know, you don't deserve anybody's, you know, friendship or allegiance. It's, It's been tough. And I think it's been tough on everybody, but for those who have held the line, um, that's that's truly a heroic thing to do, whether it's in a big public way or whether it's just in a small personal way. Thank you for, for having the courage to stand and to, to really, you know, put your money where your mouth is as far as the things you believe in most firmly. Now, I have a confession to make. This is my last official day of, of quarantine. Uh, my family has been dealing with uh, with COVID nineteen. Um, is it COVID nineteen? I don't know. We've been dealing with COVID. That's that's all I know. My wife tested positive earlier in the week, and uh, you know that we knew we were catching something. Okay, it started with the headache. It started with the stuffy head, and then the body aches came on. And you know, for for one day in particular, it was kind of miserable, fever and aching. And I mean, I it felt like okay. Got a serious viral event going on here. This is this feels like a really bad case of the flu, and uh, fortunately, I was able to to get started on some hydroxychloroquine. And uh, because my symptoms were relatively mild, I saved the ivermectin for you know emergency use. But uh, I'm pleased to tell you, within hours after getting started on hydroxychloroquine, my symptoms dramatically reduced. Now, my wife, unfortunately, uh, has had a little bit tougher time with with her bout of COVID. She actually went and got tested. The The tell for us was um, she had she had felt a little bit better. She started on hydroxy or hydroxychloroquine as well. 
and was feeling better, but she she went to um, eat a piece of toast. And as she's eating the toast, she went, whoa, I can't taste this. And it was like, okay. Well, a lot of the other symptoms were ticking off the right boxes. Now it looks like we probably are, are dealing with, with COVID. And she went and got tested, and sure enough, within five minutes, they were like, yeah, we're, we're seeing the, the positive result coming through already here. So that, that put us in quarantine. And my kids were not really happy about that either. Oh, man, you know, they had to, you know, quarantine too. Now, fortunately, it's, it's only a five-day thing. Now, I want to be really careful about what I'm about to say here because I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this is the way it is for everybody. My wife is vaccinated, and she has actually struggled with this uh, a little more than I have. I, I Frankly, after the first day, which was the worst day, I have been on the road to recovery since then, and, um, you know, sniffles and a little bit of a frog in my throat, but it's never gone into my lungs, knock on wood, you know, it's... It's been a pretty easy thing to deal with for the most part. Just not even, I wouldn't even say like a bad cold, just like it was a viral infection. And for about, uh, for about a day, it kind of sucked. And then I've been slowly, you know, getting back to normal. And it's been interesting to see, uh, to see my wife struggling a little bit more with it. Um, she takes better care of herself than I do. She eats healthier. She exercises more. I, I understand. My family is much more concerned about uh, me and, you know, my table muscle and, and uh, my unhealthy, sedentary lifestyle than, uh, than they would be about others. And, of course, the, what figures into this, too, is I'm also unvaxxed. But I'm going to share a couple of things with you here. I want to start with, uh, with an article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And how crazy it is that the things that were getting people deplatformed and banned from social media just a few weeks or months ago are finally being acknowledged as truth. Case in point, the CDC admits now natural immunity provided stronger protection against COVID than vaccines did, especially during the Delta wave. Now, I don't know if what we've been dealing with in my household was Omicron or not. I do know that... uh, Right now, it appears that whatever version is making its way through um, our community, it's, you know, it's spreading like wildfire. A lot of people are getting it. I'm not hearing much about people getting terribly sick, and I believe this is the way pandemics typically play out. The virus mutates, and the different variants are weaker, and eventually it becomes endemic, kind of like the common cold, kind of like the yearly flu, dangerous to some people. So I'm not trying to minimize that danger, but I'm also saying it's it's not nearly as daunting as what we were first facing in that first alpha wave of, of COVID. But check out this article. John Miltimore says, On Wednesday, the Centers for U.S. Disease Control and Prevention provided new research showing that during the recent Delta wave, individuals who had previously contracted COVID-19 had more protection against the virus than those who had been vaccinated. I mean, this is a huge admission for the CDC. Nobody wants to talk about natural immunity, but here it is. CDC epidemiologist Benjamin Silk told the Wall Street Journal, before the Delta variant, COVID-19 vaccination resulted in better protection against a subsequent infection than surviving a previous infection. But when looking at the summer and fall of 2021, when Delta became predominant in this country, However, surviving a previous infection now provided greater protection. End quote. So both vaccinated individuals and those who had recovered from the virus showed significant defense, scientists added, 
The CDC released its findings to reporters, but the research, at least as the, the time that this article was published, was not yet available online. Now, John Miltimore's previous research suggests receiving vaccination after a COVID infection can offer additional protection against the virus. For instance, the Mayo Clinic says recent research suggests that people who got COVID-19 in 2020 and then received mRNA vaccines produce very high levels of antibodies that are likely effective against current and possibly future variants. Some scientists call this hybrid immunity. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Are vaccine mandates in peril with this latest announcement from the Centers for Disease Control? John Miltimore writes, the findings are significant, and they dovetail with recent scientific research out of Israel showing previous infection from COVID-19 conferred longer-lasting, more robust protection than vaccines against the Delta variant. Following the Israel study, prominent scientists argued that the fact that natural immunity offered more protection than vaccines made mandatory vaccination unscientific and unethical. You think? Here's what Martin Koldorf, an epidemiologist and biostatistician and Harvard Medical School professor, had to say. He said prior COVID diseases, many working class, provides better immunity than vaccines, many professionals. So vaccine mandates are not only scientific nonsense, they are also discriminatory and unethical. Now, the CDC's findings were released days after the Supreme Court ruled that President Joe Biden's vaccinate or test requirement for businesses with more than 100 employees was unconstitutional. Now, the high court's decision prompted some businesses, including Starbucks, to scrap their vaccine mandates for employees. Starbucks COO and group president for North America told employees on Tuesday, we respect the court's ruling and will comply. Now, John Miltimore says, despite the protection offered by previous COVID infection, many public officials in countries have been reluctant to recognize natural immunity. Take, for instance, Novak Djokovic, the world's top-ranked tennis player, who recently had his visas seized by Australian authorities when he arrived unvaccinated to play in the Australian Open, even though he was initially granted a medical exemption because of a recent COVID infection. Meanwhile, Austria's conservative government recently announced it will make vaccination compulsory for adults who will face steep fines up to 3,600 euros if they fail to comply, even if they've already had the virus. And in the United States, universities have been inclined to expel students not considered fully vaccinated, which in some cases reportedly includes students who've had multiple vaccine shots, have previously had COVID, and even have received a medical exemption from a physician. John Miltimore says recent evidence, however, suggests the reluctance to treat individuals who've had COVID as fully vaccinated may be waning. For example, the NCAA has recently announced that in its winter guidelines, athletes who previously had COVID will be considered fully vaccinated if the infection took place within three months. He says the CDC's announcement that previous infection offered more protection than vaccination against the Delta variant is likely to fuel calls to end vaccine mandates, particularly for individuals who've already been infected. So it's kind of mixed good news and bad news. I want to go back for a moment here to uh, the tennis player, Novak Djokovic. I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, you know, he probably is is well-known enough. He's got enough celebrity clout 
if he wanted to seek out a doctor who could forge or fake a vaccine ID card for him, he could have faked it, I'm sure. But he chose not to. And he went to the trouble of battling the Australian government, who ultimately told him, nope, your visa's revoked, you're out of here. And I don't know if this is poetic justice or not, but it still kind of makes me go, well, isn't that interesting? You know, the Australian Open has had to refund so much in ticket sales, they've actually paid out more in refunds than they are taking in, in terms of ticket sales. Ouch. I know, karma is exact. But here's the other thing, and this this part, I don't mean to, to make light of this. I think this is very serious, but I was reading yesterday a fifth participant, five of the tennis players who have been taking part in the Australian Open, presumably all fully vaccinated as they should be. A fifth contestant has had to drop out of the Australian Open because of chest pains. Oh, I know. It's just, I'm sure it's just some coincidence and has nothing whatsoever to do with the vaccines. And yet, the stories continue to mount about athletes from so many different places around the world having heart problems. Some cases collapsing and dying. In other cases, just having heart difficulties that are career-ending kind of challenges. I know we're not supposed to make any kind of connection, but still. And as far as the unintended consequences, okay, I do feel a certain sense of smug satisfaction that, well... You know, they, they kind of brought it on themselves. So, you know, Australian authorities and Australian open authorities, too bad. You guys have lost so much money, you know, being so rigid with your desire to protect everybody. But at least you can take comfort in the fact that you're not alone. I was just seeing today that uh, uh, Adele, the singer Adele, who has been uh, trying to take up residency in Las Vegas, getting ready to launch a big show there and you know, I don't know if you've priced the, the the cost of tickets for Las Vegas shows. They are not cheap. I mean, you can pay tens of thousands of dollars for the right seats and for the right show. It's a, it's a pretty impressive place. But they're also very focused on that signaling, but we're only going to play for vaccinated audiences. And so Adele tearfully made a video explaining how she was going to have to delay the opening of her show in Las Vegas uh, due to COVID and due to other, uh, you know, supply chain issues and so forth. I'm trying hard not to revel in, in her sadness, but I don't know. Maybe banning all those unvaccinated people wasn't such a great idea after all. Maybe that's what kept the ticket sales. And who knows, you know, now that now the unvaccinated aren't uh, going to be able to go see her show, I guess they'll just have to find something else somehow to entertain themselves in Las Vegas. Good luck with that. All right, sarcasm off. The key here to me is we were told that vaccines would be the key to opening up society. Once people, enough people got vaccinated, it would, you know, stop the spread of the disease. It would make things possible to go back to normal. I'm putting that in air quotes. But there really was no, well, there was there was no normal to return to, and there was no intention of returning to normal. It's that at least that's how it appears. The goalposts just kept moving and moving. I know it sounds like a bad thing to say here, but the more people complied, the more those in authority pushed to get away with whatever else they could get. That's how it strikes me, and that's a that's a pretty sad state to be in. Now, when people in power do genuinely destructive things with that power, 
we have a prime opportunity to learn from their mistakes. And we also have a duty to ensure that uh, those abusers of power are never allowed to wield such power ever again. I've got an article here from J.B. Shirk, published on AmericanThinker.com. After COVID, never again. He says, two years ago, how many people would have predicted that tennis's number one ranked player would be banned from competing in Australia and France for refusing to allow their governments to decide what is injected into his body? How many people would have predicted the construction of internment camps to house citizens who similarly refuse to comply? How many would have predicted that national leaders of democratic countries would demand censorship of dissenting points of views? And how many would have predicted that tech and media companies would eagerly jump at those calls for censorship by actively deleting from the public square any voices contrary to the official narratives sanctioned by those in power? J.B. Shirk says, whatever threat to human health the China virus poses, it has been dwarfed by the threats to peace, stability, and freedom caused by two years of government tyranny run amok. For people who never experienced the authoritarianism practiced by dictatorships abroad or stubbornly believed that the leaders of free nations would somehow be immune to the corrupting influence of power, these two years have hopefully been a wake-up call. He says, if and when we get on the other side of this COVID-1984 war against citizens, never again must take on a new additional meaning that includes people's resolute promise never to allow their governments to embrace totalitarianism in the names of health and security. He says, take this shameful moment in the history of nation-states once committed to liberty and use it to advantage by teaching your children and grandchildren how quickly freedom can be smothered by politicians and bureaucrats with the best of intentions. Now, all of this leads to a damning question. Why have so few people with power stood up during these last two years to call out this COVID-1984 madness for what it is? The greatest and most organized attack on human freedom in nearly a century. Yes, voices have been censored in ways once unthinkable in the West. Sure, companies have worked hand-in-glove with governments to intimidate, punish, and mock dissenters. It is true that part of the reason for the success of woo-flu totalitarianism is that a large portion of the population actually clamored for governments to strip them of their rights and dominate their lives in a bargain for personal survival, as short-sighted as any ever made with the devil. But he says what's sometimes overlooked, however, is that no system created by humans is capable of protecting freedom without constant pushback from the people whose freedom is at stake. Even people still in possession of some lingering virtue find it difficult to sustain a sense of right and wrong in the halls of government. Political bureaucracy, by its nature, drains morality from its workforce. It treats human life as just a number. But J.B. Shirk says every human life matters. The problem is that government work teaches the opposite lesson. Life is just a numbers game. Consider a small-town mayor in rural America. Far from the swamp in D.C., that official is still forced to make decisions that will statistically lead to someone's death. Perhaps the choice of how to spend limited local tax dollars is between adding a traffic light and celebrating the harvest in the town square. So choosing the latter may one day lead to an unnecessary automobile death, while choosing the former may diminish the mayor's re-election hopes. Government actors learn quickly that small decisions have unintended life-or-death consequences. Once human life is seen as nothing more than a number, though, 
most political actors find it easier to bury their consciences beneath statistics. What kind of a monster would trap people in their homes, close their churches, and deprive them of any means of making a living? Well, for some of those monsters, case totals and transmission rates outweighed the reason, rationality, or restraint required to protect human rights during a potential emergency. Treating humans as numbers justified trampling on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The result of that short-sightedness has been devastating. Then there's the conspiracy of silence. Imagine a serial murderer preying on a community. Both the mayor and chief of police are determined to protect their jurisdiction. Officers arrest a suspect who seems guilty. A jury convicts, and the murders stop. Then, years later, it's discovered by an investigator that a piece of evidence was illegally planted on the suspect and that the man in prison may not be guilty. What happens? See, for moral people, the answer is simple. You bring the evidence of impropriety forward to ensure justice is done. However, in practice, such a disclosure would end up damaging both the police force and the civilian political authorities, as well as weaken the public's sense of safety. So too often a conspiracy of silence develops, whereby the very people vested with the power to punish crimes and end up becoming after-the-fact accessories to those crimes in a type of wicked feedback loop. Good intentions are protected with silence even after they've proven to have caused tremendous harm. Now think of everyone in the U.S. government who must have known that the emergency use vaccines developed to combat the China virus would injure or kill a percentage of those treated, yet chose not to inform the public. Think of all the doctors denying simple therapeutics to patients. Think of all the hospitals fraudulently listing unrelated causes of death as from COVID instead of with COVID in order to recoup higher payouts from the federal government. Think of all the medical journals that have censored research contradicting the official COVID narrative. Any one of these institutional guardians would have benefited the public by providing greater transparency. But they chose instead to protect the reputations of government actors, medical luminaries, and even science itself by staying silent. And when the ends justify the means and ethics are supplanted with good intentions, unfathomably, unfathomably large numbers of people can conspire to commit crimes against humanity without ever having to say a word. Then there's the allure of propaganda. The first lesson politicians learn is that slogans work. Now, unfortunately, this lesson teaches them that propaganda is more important than objective truth. Repetition of certain selected words becomes more valuable than complex nuance. Successful repetition of lies proves that some people are more than willing to be led astray. And routinely successful manipulation of a population eventually convinces political actors that people are nothing but sheep to be controlled. People become things not worthy of individual respect. And when that happens, propaganda flows from the government without remorse. Those with power justify these deceits as noble lies. But when one noble lie is followed by another and another, nobody even asks what is right or wrong. Instead, the question is asked whether those lies will succeed in obtaining public compliance. Didn't Dr. Fauci essentially say as much about face masks? Why did he say one thing in February of 2020 and something much different in March or April of 2020? I think his answer was some variant of, we had to lie to you for your own good. Look, the end effect is this. Rampant nihilism among those with power. 
human life becomes insignificant next to the self-interest of government actors. The natural rights and liberties of any individual become undermined and forgotten. And those who choose to defy regime-enforcing propaganda become domestic enemies. So J.B. Shirk says what two years of COVID-1984 should have taught people by now is that bureaucracies can never be trusted to police themselves for our protection. He says when the powerful treat the powerless as meaningless statistics to be manipulated and kept in the dark, well then it's up to the powerless to decide how much tyranny they are willing to endure before finally deciding they've had enough. Okay, my sincere prayer is that we've reached the point where we say, we've had enough. And when we say never again, we don't just say it, we write it on our hearts and we mean it. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. Thank you so much for listening to the America Out Loud Network. And please pay attention to who the sponsors are on this network. Let them know that the, their message is reaching your ears. Whether that means doing business with them or referring somebody who needs the product or the service that they offer. Or just reaching out to let them know you appreciate them supporting voices that are, that are speaking the message of liberty. They need to know that uh, that their money is being well spent and and everything that, that you do to support them helps to keep this particular aspect of free speech flowing as it should. So I mentioned in the first segment, uh, you know, my, my wife and I are completing our last little bit of quarantine after having to deal with COVID. And thankfully, I mean, I'm so grateful. It has been a relatively painless process for the most part. No doubt we both had something. No doubt, um, you know, we've, we've had to, to get over it. 
But one of the things it gave us was a little bit of time to uh, just kind of sit back and chill. And one of the things that we chose to do was to watch a movie um, that Jeffrey A. Tucker wrote about just a couple of weeks ago in the pages of the Brownstone Institute, actually on their website. And it's a movie called Songbird. Now, look, I'll admit, I kind of like dystopian movies, V for Vendetta and, and others, uh, The Road. I mean, some of them are just downright depressing, depending on how they're done. Um, I was looking forward to seeing this. But I have to say, this may be one of the most dystopian movies that I've ever seen in my life. And the crazy thing about it is the, the kind of dystopia that it portrays, what makes it so spooky is how close it comes to something that all of us have already experienced. Or So it's, it's, it's not that far removed from our own world. Like, we're, we're not living in a full-on dystopia yet, but... The dystopia that the movie shows, its you could see it from here. It's way closer than I think most people would like to see. Objects in mirror are closer than appear. Objects in the movie are closer than you would like them to be. So this is Jeffrey Tucker's review of Songbird, the dystopian film that became real. He says, watching Songbird was a delight. Wait, wrong word. It was chilling, remarkable, stunning, revealing, and terrifying in strange ways. It features a dystopian society that is fully consumed by disease panic and controlled by a police state that claims to be fixing the problem. But the problem is not being fixed. Everything gets worse and worse. No one seems to know how to stop it because no one's actually responsible. Everyone is merely playing a role as civilization collapses. Now, it's not some wild vision of the future. It's a prescient crystallization of many aspects of the present. And Tucker says, I can only congratulate the writers and directors and also praise any venue that allows it to be seen. In fact, he says, I'm surprised at some level, given the censorship in our times, that you and I are permitted to see it at all. It's satisfying to know that at least one film made in the last two years dealt frankly with pandemic lockdowns and their social and economic implications. They mean the end of liberty, the end of human society as we've known it, and also the end of public health. And the truth is perfectly captured in the film, which is nightmarish, not because of an imagined future hell, but because so many people have lived some version of this movie in the last two years. And millions around the world continue to do so. Now, the contrast with the 2011 film Contagion is striking. Jeffrey Tucker writes in that movie, in which everyone seems to have seen and actually acted out once the pathogen finally arrived, the CDC is responsible, benevolent, and one of the few institutions in society not driven by panic. Their track and trace antics are wise, but sadly don't actually solve anything. Regardless, that movie helped mainstream the idea of lockdowns and suggested it won't be so bad, at least not as bad as allowing a virus to circulate in the normal operations of the market and society. Well, Songbird gives an entirely different look at the same theme, and a much more realistic one, even though this is supposed to be some kind of dystopian fiction. <clears throat> Tucker says it was the first Hollywood production following the lockdowns of March 2020. In April, writer and director Adam Mason got a call from Simon Boyes with an idea to capture the present moment in film and imagine a future in which the ethos and policies of lockdown drive the whole of life. The virus is a mutation of COVID-19 four years later, now called 
COVID-23, and the lockdowns are more intense than ever. Now, one, one irony about the filming in the summer and fall of 2020 is captured by Wikipedia. The production adhered to safety protocols, including regular testing, a maximum crew size of 40 per day, and keeping actors separated. Ah, yes, science. So, yes, there is a sense in which the making of the film itself was subjected to the very same brutality of human separation that the film reveals as a police state nightmare. Perhaps that helps explain the intensity of the film itself. It is about the world in which the film was actually being made. Now, Jeff Tucker says this movie should hold a high place in cinematic history as the first to call out the sheer inhumanity of those months and presently foresee what a possible future could look like. It did not appear in streaming until December of 2020. And the reviews are absolutely brutal, at least as they stand right now. In fact, he has a link to Rotten Tomatoes in the, uh, in the article. The film was criticized as pure exploitation, unrealistic, disjointed, and tedious. But he says none of that is correct. It's all wildly incorrect. But he says, I also suspect why the movie didn't quite capture the moment when it came out. Trump had been defeated in the election. Half the country was already back to full normal, particularly red states. And there was a presumption in the air that all our troubles were about to be over because we were getting a new president who would magically deploy the power of science to make everything better. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, for reasons I will never fully understand, there was a pro-lockdown ethos in all fashionable circles of art, film, music, and media generally. And he says, my speculation is that this was due to the perception that Trump himself turned against lockdowns. Therefore, to be pro-lockdown was to signal anti-Trumpism. And the lockdowns were not entirely inconvenient for the well-to-do, as well as the influence of the Chinese market here might have tipped the scales. But for whatever reason, the traditional pro-speech, pro-liberty, pro-inclusionist ideology of Hollywood and media culture were thrown out the window after lockdowns and replaced by a creeping adoration for central planning and authoritarianism as the means by which society defeats germs. Now, this film took an entirely different view, a more traditional view, and hence it had to be crushed before it gained adherence for the anti-lockdown cause. So the main themes of the movie center on two pillars of lockdown ideology, social distancing and track and trace. In fact, both are shown as applied in the extreme. There are only a few scenes in the entire film in which actual people are in contact with other actual people outside their own household. All communication outside of the household is via digital services. Groceries are delivered via a box in the wall with UV lights designed to disinfect anything incoming. The police state in the movie seems to be on autopilot. It just grinds along with a failed orthodoxy that no one seems to be in a position to stop. There's no legislature, no president that we ever see, and not even a public health authority as such. It's a police state in which the sanitation department seems to have all control and no one is in a position to check that power. And the result is chilling. Not a world that, in which anyone would want to live. Everyone in lockdown is struggling with physical and mental health. The corruption, the universal sadness, the class divisions, the isolation and despair, the digital monitoring of everything and everybody, all in the name of disease control, is captured in a way that's unfamiliar, uncomfortably rather familiar. 
Now, on the matter of track and trace, every citizen must use their phone to achieve daily temperature checks, and the results are uploaded via a government app. Every home also has listening devices tuned to hear coughs. A cough and a fever result in the police showing up in hazmat suits with guns to take the sick person plus the domestic contacts to the quarantine camp where they will either die or recover. And there are immunity passports. One character in the film, the only one who seems healthy, the only one, is a courier who delivers goods on a bicycle. He somehow got an immunity test from having gotten the dreaded disease and recovered. He has a bracelet giving him something close to freedom as an essential employee. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, So far as I can tell, there is no vaccine in the movie. Or perhaps it was like our own, unable to stop infection or spread, and so therefore not considered part of what makes one free. The only immunity in the film that seems to be recognized is natural immunity. But getting someone to recognize that and issue a bracelet appears to be a real challenge. Now he says, think about this. This movie was made in the summer following lockdowns. And he says, I'm thinking back to the days when this movie was released. Conspiracy theorists and others who opposed the lockdowns were warning about immunity passports, quarantine camps, and totalitarian controls. And they were laughed at as absurd. But he says, today in New York City, you cannot go to a show or restaurant without being fully vaccinated, the definition of which seems to be on the verge of changing. Meanwhile, while we don't have quarantine camps here, they exist and are in constant use in Australia. While students around this country have been routinely locked in their dorm rooms for having had contact with someone who tests positive. So this film was prophetic, so much so that the critics had to pan it before too many people gained access to a compelling warning. See, in the early days of real-life lockdown, there were essentially three camps that emerged. There were the people who imagined that lockdowns and closures were the right way to deal with the virus for various reasons that were often contradictory. All of them predicted better outcomes from lockdowns than from staying open. They have all been proven wrong beyond a shadow of a doubt. There was a second camp consisting of people like me who believed that however bad the virus would be, disabling basic social and economic functioning would make it worse, unleashing the police state, demoralizing the population, and failing utterly to control the pathogen over the long term. Now, there was also a third camp who imagined themselves to be the moderates. They favored nothing more than track and trace. We needed widespread and unrelenting testing of everyone and then recommending a safe course of action, such as self-quarantining. Now, maybe that all sounds scientific and innocuous, even obvious, but in practice, the reality is very different. Track and trace can be the basis of its own dystopia, and it ultimately leads to the surveillance state as shown in this film. He says this modern position isn't that at all or this moderate position, rather. It's a template for everything that every free person should oppose. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I get why this movie was panned at the time it came out. It's too real, too prophetic, too poignant, too honest. And it revealed the truth that so many people were unwilling to see at that time. These seemingly scientific slogans, flatten the curve, slow the spread, socially distance, track and trace mask deeply dangerous policy ideas that can ruin life for everyone and utterly destroy health and human liberty itself. The film is right. Pandemic controls are an existential threat.
Jeffrey Tucker says so much of the country is long ago back to normal. They want to forget that this ever happened to us, and they imagine that they're safe from the egregious policies due to political protection and geography. And yet he says, As I'm typing these sentences while listening to Anthony Fauci testify on the need for not only a new generation of vaccines, but also his dream for another comprehensive government response to the next pathogen. So he says, The movie Songbird now looms large in my head. What precisely is the difference between what this film shows as the most ghastly dystopia and what Fauci himself is pushing right now in the U.S. Senate? Jeffrey Tucker says, I'm not sure I see much difference at all. So the bottom line is, he says, you're not supposed to see this movie. That's the best reason to see it now. So if you have a Hulu subscription, it's on Hulu. That's where I watched it. And I'm not about to tell you, it's the feel-good hit of the year. It's not. And the most disturbing part about it is when you watch it, you'll realize we're only a few steps, a few short steps away from the dystopia that's portrayed in this movie. So, there were some entertainment aspects, but for the most part, this one felt like a warning. And if nothing else, it made me feel much more resolute in my own determination. I will not go down that road again. And I will never lend my um, consent to those who want to take it down that road. Now, I'm going to shift gears here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, January 6th. And I know this is a touchy subject for some people. Whether you know, it's, look for the political left, this is this has been such a, a chance to make hay and to milk the outrage and to claim power and to portray themselves as victims. I mean, it's it's been almost irresistible. But there's also been a lot of division on the conservative side of the aisle, in that uh, there are a lot of conservatives and and uh, people who would not fall to the left side of the political spectrum who nonetheless believe, well, you know, the people who were, you know, acting out in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021, they were some kind of domestic terrorists or they were they were extremists of some sort. I don't know. I'm, I'm not here to tell you that uh, they were or they weren't. But to me, it's it's really crazy how the official explanation of what happened just isn't adding up. In fact, it, it, it raises more questions than it answers. And I'm going to turn to the capable pen of John Green, writing for AmericanThinker.com, about how the January 6th narrative is starting to unravel. John Green says the Democrats and the propaganda ministry have tried to portray the events of January 6th as the greatest assault on democracy in, like, forever. But he says it seems like that narrative is starting to unravel. And the unraveling began when many people began to suspect that the whole thing was a setup and started looking into it. It wasn't law enforcement or mainstream media journalists investigating. They could be controlled. It was amateur citizen investigators using the power of the Internet. Ah, the Internet. Allowing average citizens to cross-reference and collate a limitless sea of information. Our founders would approve. John Green says citizen investigators began to identify individuals who were clearly involved in inciting the riot on on January 6th. But he said a curious number of them had not been arrested by the FBI, even though their identity was well known. One such individual is Ray Epps. 
Epps is seen on video urging the crowd to enter the Capitol building, not just the day of the disturbance, but also the night before. Now, Epps lives in Arizona on a ranch. He hasn't been arrested, and there were numerous others just like him. So the question became unavoidable. Did the federal government have involvement with January 6th? And the answer is we don't know the answer to that question. And that's a problem for a constitutional republic. As this curious information began to come to public attention, the FBI cover-up started. It removed Ray Epps from its most wanted list and released a report stating that there was no evidence of a coordinated attack on the Capitol, even though they had been calling it a coordinated attack for months. Apparently, the Bureau hoped the whole thing would fade into obscurity, but it didn't. Merrick Garland and Nancy Pelosi wouldn't let it. The proud head of the police part of our police state couldn't let it go. Garland was having too much fun playing with his new fully operational Death Star, which has the Orwellian name Department of Justice. The only thing missing is a people's at the beginning of that name. Unfortunately, Garland has bragged for months about his shock and awe campaign to bring insurrectionists to justice. The DOJ has had hundreds of citizens under arrest for months for the horrendous crimes of trespassing and taking selfies on Capitol grounds. What are prosecutors supposed to do? Go to the judge and say, oops, our bad. That's not the way a police state operates. But Merrick Garland isn't the only one pushing the narrative beyond what the evidence supports. Nancy Pelosi has kept the topic in the news as well. She's facing a midterm shellacking, looking down the barrel of a Trump return to politics and needs a propaganda blunt object with which to beat on Republicans. Her solution was simple, elegant, and stupid. Appoint a committee to investigate something that didn't happen, the greatest assault on our democracy since Pearl Harbor, or was it 9-11? I forget. Add a couple of useful idiot Republicans, preferably of the never-Trump variety, subpoena every Republican in the known universe, and then provide creative leaks to the awaiting propaganda ministry. Pelosi, note to self, don't forget to add Adam Schiff to the committee. Voila! A year's worth of negative Trump Trump news cycles. Now, maybe it could even be stretched to three years. But after a year of investigating an insurrection that the FBI said wasn't an insurrection, the question started to get a bit too inconvenient for Nancy Pelosi's committee. So she did what masters do. She jerked the leash hard and her twin dogs barked. The committee released a statement defending Ray Epps, and the FBI arrested Stuart Rhodes, leader of the Oath Keepers, and a number of his fellow travelers. Now, in August of 2021, the FBI said there was no evidence of a coordinated attack on the Capitol. Now, in January of 2022, the FBI is saying that Rhodes organized teams to conduct an armed paramilitary operation to prevent congressional certification of the vote. But there's just one problem. It never happened. Except for the activities of Ray Epps, who is no longer wanted by the FBI, there was no coordination at all of the mob at the Capitol. Stuart Rhodes was present, but he never entered the Capitol. And like other Oath Keepers present, he was unarmed. In fact, the only firearms present in the Capitol on that day were those in the possession of the Capitol Police, one of which was used to kill an unarmed protester. 
So the indictment of the Oath Keepers is not about what they did. It's about what they wanted to do, even though they didn't do it. Now, John Green says crimes of intent are tricky things to prosecute. How can any man know what's in another man's heart and mind? Does the FBI have some evidence of his actual desire, or is Stuart Rhodes automatically guilty of wrong think because he's patriotic? In other words, an anti-government conservative. I mean, maybe the FBI's gotten possession of incriminating emails. It's possible that Rhodes, a Yale-trained lawyer, blasted out his insurrection plans with his Gmail account. Of course, the jury will also need to consider the FBI history of falsifying emails, such as it did to get warrants against Carter Page. Maybe the FBI has witnesses that overheard the Oath Keepers' plans. I mean, the Bureau is well known for planning informants in organizations suspected of subversion. But whatever witnesses it has had better have more credibility than Andrew McCabe or Peter Strzok or Kevin Kleinsmith or any of the three agents that have just been removed from the Whitmer kidnapping witness list. So John Green says, look, I'm not jumping to any conclusions about Oath Keepers. Whatever evidence the FBI has is going to need very close examination by an army of citizen investigators. And he says, don't underestimate their abilities. Doing so didn't work out so well for Dan, fake but accurate, rather. Much to the FBI's consternation, the January 6th investigation hasn't faded. And the amateur investigations continue. But the questions are getting more inconvenient by the nanosecond. Now we have an attorney general and various FBI officials who can do little more than stammer or mutter the words ongoing investigation and stare at the ceiling while being questioned by Congress. Ongoing investigation is starting to feel like the new pleading the fifth. After the Republicans win the midterm elections, John Green says they should keep the January 6th committee in place, but under new management. Nancy Pelosi's committee set a few precedents that should be very useful. The minority party has no rights. Committee members are subject to the approval of the Speaker of the House. Executive privilege is a thing of the past. Any member of the opposing party is also fair game. The Republicans should subpoena Merrick Garland, Christopher Wray, and Nancy Pelosi. John Green says, I'm dying to see how Granny Boxwine does under questioning from Ted Cruz. Watching Cackles Harris laugh nervously at every question should just about end her political future if she hasn't already ended it herself. Heck, he says they should even subpoena the electronic devices of Shifty Schiff and Bang Bang the Fang Fang Swalwell. I'm sure they have some interesting texts and emails about January 6th as well. Yeah, he doesn't really pull any punches, does he? <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's John Green's take. Why do we keep questioning this? Well, because you're an insurrectionist yourself. Nope, it's because truth matters more than you know. And the reason that I speak up on this is simply because the narrative is not just that the people who, you know, breached the Capitol and went in there and put their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, you know, it's, it's not a matter of what, what they were doing so much as what they did, however wrong, however right, is being used to justify wholesale weaponization of the government, or at least as many aspects of the government as possible, and aiming them directly at people like you and me. People who love liberty, people who are determined not to be separated from our liberties, but have caused no offense other than wanting to be free. 
and refusing to be bullied into submission. It's a problem. And it's not something that you and I can safely ignore. We can't just, you know, pretend it's not happening and hope that it goes away. So in the absence of uh, that problem going away, let's call it out for what it is. Let's hold the people accountable who've lied to us. The big question on my mind is I want to know how much federal involvement was there. Because there is some history of false flag operations or agents provocateur and informants and and others, confidential, (laughs) confidential informants who go in there and try to provoke people to do things that are against the law. And when there's a lot of discontent, that's not such a hard sell. I think the FBI has done a wonderful job of saving us from a number of different monsters of its own creation. And that's the place where I draw the line and just say, yeah, I I can't go along with it. Okay, one final thought. Looking around at all the modern conveniences that we have, this has been impressed on me a lot, especially since it's winter and, you know, I appreciate warmth and and, uh, shelter and this kind of thing. Our modern life and all the good things about our modern life are not because of government. Ken McManigal, writing for EverythingVoluntary.com, says the conveniences of the modern world are all around us all the time, but he says, I don't think I'll ever take them for granted. Reason being, his grandmother grew up in New Mexico during the Dust Bowl days. Her big family was crowded into a two-room, dirt-floored shack without indoor plumbing or electricity. They traveled by horse-drawn wagon. Their water was dipped from a cistern. They didn't even have a windmill. They picked cotton by hand, dragging the heavy sacks behind them. She grew up living basically the same life as someone born in that region a hundred years earlier could have lived. Now, the Great Depression probably didn't even affect her family, or at least it never figured into any of the stories she told about growing up. And he says, when I was a kid, the old shack was still standing. I visited it with her a couple of times. Their life wasn't easy, but it was good enough. So maybe it's understandable that I can still marvel at things like indoor plumbing and running water, flush toilets and electricity. It's not as though I've ever had to live without those things. But he says, I realize how few of the people who have ever been alive have had them. Anything that has been around such a short time can go away easier than you suppose. There's little chance they'll go away in our lifetime, but he says over the long term, the chances are fairly high. If something happens and these modern conveniences go away, the radical socialists who use the environment as their excuse would quickly realize how bad this would be for the environment. But truthfully, he says, I think they already know. They just don't care as long as it kills off most humans. Kent McManigal says, I'm not content to be dependent on modern conveniences. I enjoy making fire without lighters or matches. But the ability to make fire with primitive methods makes me value the ease of using a lighter even more highly. And it's the same with every skill. He says, I'm grateful to all the researchers, experimenters, and workers who've given us the good things of the modern world. But some others would also like credit. For instance, government would like you to believe it brought about this modern world's peace, prosperity, and safety. And yet the truth is, when these things are the norm, it's in spite of political government, not because of it. So Kent McManagle's advice is to appreciate the heroes, but not the freeloaders. And I think this is true in pretty much every area of your life. 
politicians, particularly in an election year, will go to great lengths to assure you that anything good that's happening in your life is because of them. Look at the money I brought back to our district. Look at all the things that I've sponsored. Look at the causes that I've stood for. But the truth is the greatest favor that any politician can do for most of us is to stay out of our way. Let us pursue our happiness as we choose. Roll back the regulatory state. Just get out of the way and let us be happy. Let us pursue anything peaceful. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network.